A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Raffaello Pantucci, a senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore and a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Raffaello is also the co-author of the excellent Sinostan, China's Inadvertent Empire. We'll discuss his research on Central Asia and the region's shifting geopolitics. Raffaella, thank you so much for joining me. I believe late at night there in Singapore, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation, Katie. It's a real pleasure to be here. So you recently got back from a research trip through Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And I wanted to start there. What were the questions that you were focused on during the visit and what surprised you or didn't about what you found? So this trip through the region was a completion in some ways of a wider set of trips I've managed to do since the beginning of the year of essentially checking into all five countries in Central Asia. The key question I've been trying to understand is how have things changed in the year since we saw the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Of course, there was a lot of assumptions when we saw the invasion happen that this would be catastrophic to the region. They are intimately tied to Moscow, of course, to Russia, through history, through culture, through economy. And so the expectation was that as you saw the Russian economy take a beating, they would suffer as well. But then the other side of that was I wanted to try to understand a little bit more this bigger question that I hear a lot of people saying, which is, well, if the region is taking a loss in its relationship with Russia, therefore its relationship with China must be ascending and growing further and sort of filling that vacuum. So the idea was to try to understand a little bit better what's actually happening on the ground. And the truth is, of course, it's a far more complicated picture than our quick assumptions would make us believe. The biggest takeaway I have is actually that Russia has been investing a lot in the relationships over the past year. President Putin's visited all five countries. The economic ties have thickened, actually. We've seen a lot more labor migrants going, and we've seen remittances and money coming out of Russia into Central Asia grow substantially. And, you know, the best sort of evidence of this paying off is the fact that we just saw all five Central Asian leaders show up in Moscow for the Victory Day Parade. So, you know, it's kind of evidence of the fact that, you know, the relationship with Moscow has stayed tight and gotten tighter during this period. But the China relationship has also strengthened. And that has strengthened in, in slightly different ways. And it's picking up from a moment of drop 
that happened during the pandemic when China shut its borders very aggressively, very abruptly, that meant the trade and everything else came grinding to a halt in some cases. But it's now picked up and it's picking up and going in very interesting directions. And I think we're going to see this coming week, some really interesting things coming out of another summit, which is happening in Xi'an, China, where all five of the Central Asian leaders are going to meet with President Xi Jinping. As you have teed that up so neatly, what should we be looking for? What do you think are, could be some of the key developments to come out of that summit? It's difficult. It's not very clear that they've teed up anything specific that's coming. And usually these sorts of events, you know, if there's a big announcement that's going to come, it's kind of trailed in some way, shape or form. I'm sure they're going to talk a lot about investment. Uh, Ministry of Commerce has been releasing figures this week saying, Chinese Ministry of Commerce saying that, you know, they've invested something like 15 billion into Central Asia, uh, which is quite a lot. And, you know, a lot of money for the region. And actually, if you look at it, it's money that's been going in for quite a while, 10 or more years now. So it is substantial. It's potentially more than Russia's actually been investing. But then I think the other interesting one to look out for, which they're going to highlight, is the Kazakhs have announced that they're going to open a visa-free regime for Chinese nationals to travel to Kazakhstan. Reportedly, the Kyrgyz may be about to follow, and we may see others announce such a similar thing or something during this summit. And that's really interesting because previously there's been a long sense of deep, kind of quite frankly racist <laughs> xenophobia in the region towards Chinese nationals. And the fact that they're now making it easier for them to come, you know, Chinese workers coming in and working on projects and Chinese companies coming in not employing locals has been a long standing bugbear of the Central Asians. And so the fact that they're now opening their borders more to them suggests that hurdle has been overcome in some way. It'll also interesting to see what the reciprocal side is from Chinese perspective, because of course, whenever countries do these sorts of visa arrangements, there's usually a, a quid pro quo that comes with it. We've talked before offline about the China-Russia relationship in the context of the region. And I think what can often be a sort of conventional wisdom in Western coverage, that this is a critical source of tension between them, that Russia may be unnerved by the extent to which China has increased its presence in the region. But is that the right way to look at it? Or how should we see their competing or perhaps overlapping priorities towards the region? I've never particularly liked the characterization that we often see, which is that the Russians do the security and the Chinese do the economics. The thing that always bothered me about that was it was illogical, right? Because security costs money. <laughs> you know, deploying your people, doing all that sort of stuff, that's a cost. And I know the Russians love having their kind of Ruski Mir and, you know, having their area of control. But, you know, I, I also know that they want to make some profit from this experience. And similarly, on the other side, from a Chinese perspective, the reason China's so interested in Central Asia is because it's tied to Xinjiang which is one of China's most sensitive regions, a region where they see a problem which the rest of the world disagrees with them on, but they see a real problem from extremism emanating from there with links abroad. And there have been some in the past and some terrorist groups and networks and so on. But they're basically seeing it linked to a very important domestic security question. And do we think they would just trust the Russians to look out for that for them? <laughs> what country does that? You know what I mean? If you're worried about your domestic security, you worry about it yourself. You don't hand this off to someone else to look out for. So it never made sense to me, this dichotomy. And the truth is, if you look on the ground, the Chinese are doing stuff in the security realm. But the thing is, they do it in a much more targeted way. So they do it on things that are really of concern to them, that might impact them directly, not in the abstract, but in the very specific. And that's, I think, where the key difference lies. And I think that's really the issue. So in a way, they both do, in fact, economics, and they both do security, but in slightly different ways. And so I don't think there's actually that division of labor in a very clean way. When we come to the tension side, there are tensions, and we can certainly see them. Back in, in the early 2010s, the Chinese opened a military base on the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan. 
And reportedly this was done without the Tajiks telling the Russians or anyone telling the Russians. The Russians discovered post-facto that this had happened. And this, of course, made them very angry because they thought, oh, well, this is our domain, you know. And, and Tajikistan is also a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is, you know, a kind of NATO equivalent, if you will, for the former Soviet space. And, you know, the idea that, you know, a member of this coalition would let another country come and set up a base in your territory and you wouldn't bother to inform the kind of the main party is, you know, a bit off. But the Russians, you know, are very angry about it. But they were angry at the Tajiks. They didn't get angry at the Chinese about it. <laughs> you know, they said, all right, we're, we're not going to pick that fight there. So they've always been very careful. And similarly, on the Chinese side, you know, whenever I went to Beijing and talked to Chinese experts or Chinese officials about any of this, about Central Asia, they would always say we would never do anything to aggravate and anger our Russian brothers. And actually, I think that narrative has gotten more legs now. Because now we can see that the relationship, the geopolitical relationship between China and Russia has got so much tighter that we can see that they really see themselves locked in this existential struggle against the West. And so they're never going to let a region like Central Asia come between them. So they're always going to make sure that that overarching relationship is a priority, not, you know, these little countries in between. And, you know, we can see this most clearly in some ways in um, the joint statement that was put out after President Xi visited to Moscow, where they made a very specific reference to the fact they're going to be coordinating policies uh, or talking about coordinating policies in Central Asia. You mentioned Xinjiang as a key factor in, in China's mm -hmm. thinking. How does that complicate and influence China's approach to countries in the region, I guess, particularly countries like Kazakhstan? So it's a difficult one because we, we have a habit of thinking of China as quite mono-ethnic. And it is really. I mean, it's more than 90 plus, 95 percent, I think, right? <laughs> Han Chinese. So it's true. The population is overwhelmingly Han Chinese. However, there are the minorities and the minorities there's a lot of them who are on the fringes. Um, so if you get to the, sort of the border countries or the border regions, you'll find that there's communities that basically you can find on both sides of the borders there. And this is very true of Xinjiang. So if you go out to Xinjiang, you find that there's around, I think, a million ethnic Kazakhs that live in China, in Xinjiang. Similarly, if you get up towards the borders with Kyrgyzstan, with Tajikistan, you find ethnic Kyrgyz who are actually Chinese, you know, Chinese nationals born, but ethnically Kyrgyz. And then, of course, you've got the Uyghur population, which you know, the majority of it is in China, but there are large Uyghur diasporas across the border in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan in particular. And I say all this by which to say that, you know, there is a deep kind of human intermingling across that border that exists. And of course, that is something that has become complicated by the approach that China is taking to Xinjiang, the deep crackdowns on the Uyghur population or the wider communities and minority populations that exist in the region. To the point where we've seen members of those minority communities getting caught up in these camps. And of course, since the biggest group is the Kazakhs, we've seen a lot of Kazakhs getting caught up in this camp system as well. And of course, these Kazakhs have family members across the borders. And actually, Kazakhstan is a country that has a policy where if you are ethnically Kazakh, you're entitled to come back to Kazakhstan whenever you want and kind of claim nationality. So theoretically, all of these people could do that, right? <laughs> There is a strong connection there. And that, of course, with Kazakhstan in particular, has caused some issues. Kazakhstan is a country that has got a, a system where some level of dissent is permitted. And we've seen a lot of complaints and we've seen a lot of protests from amongst the Kazakh community in particular about their co-ethnics, about some of their family members who get caught up in this and they lobby the government to try to do something about it. You've seen this to a lesser degree in Kyrgyzstan, to be honest, but a little bit. But really, Kazakhstan is the heart of this. Now, Having said all of that, that's one sort of tension that's created. But what I would want people to bear in mind is, that unfortunately, this doesn't extrapolate out to the Uyghur community. Now, we often have an assumption that because they're all Turkic peoples, they would all be kind of brothers and want to look out for each other. Truth is, I found very limited 
discussion, certainly at an official level, about trying to do something to change the Chinese mind. At the end of the day, people tend to look at this and say, well, unfortunately, these people are Chinese and under that government, and that's what their government is doing to them. And it's terrible, but unfortunately, that's life. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's a very kind of delicate balance. And when you do see these countries getting agitated, it tends to be more about co-ethnics across the border. The one caveat I'd add to that is uh, Uzbekistan, where it was very interesting on my last couple of visits. I've noticed that the chatter around Xinjiang, um, what's happening there, is more palpable, frankly. And if you look in the online space in particular, you do find people expressing concern about it. If we stick with Kazakhstan for a moment, because it strikes me Kazakhstan's approach to the war in Ukraine has been particularly interesting over the past mm. year. President Takayev has appeared to push back publicly at times against Russia's narrative of the war, yet he was also there alongside Putin at the Victory Day Parade. How would you characterize his key interests here and, and the balance that he has sought to strike since the start of the war? I mean, this is a question I was asking all of the countries and I was visiting recently. And the honest truth is that they all say to you, well, look, Raf, have you looked at a map recently? You know, who surrounds us? What do you, what do you expect us to do? <laughs> what, do you, what do you think is our plan? And we have to give that to them. It is certainly true. Kazakhstan's got this huge border with Russia. I think it's almost a fifth of the population is ethnically Russian. They live up near the border with Russia. If you were to take some of the narratives that President Putin and Russia were advancing about invading Ukraine before the invasion happened, where they talked about Ukraine not really being a country. Uh, they talked about, you know, the fact that there was a Russian minority there that was being oppressed. The fact that this country wanted to come back to them. You could make this case very similarly in Kazakhstan. We've had President Putin say that, you know, this is a relatively new country. Is it really even a country? We've had a campaign in Kazakhstan to try to Kazakify, if you will, the country. So they tried to move away from Cyrillic script. They tried to impose Kazakh as the sort of national language and get anyone to learn it and sort of using less Russian. And, and that's caused a certain level of tension, of course, amongst the Russian communities. And Kazakhstan is a country that's always had this problem within it because it is, it's a huge country, you know, bigger than Western Europe, I think, in terms of landmass and space, but, you know, only got 20 million people living on it who tend to live on the borders, frankly. The capital Astana is a, is a very odd city because it's just in the middle of the country specifically because that's meant to kind of help tie the country together. It's far away from everything. The main city really is Almaty, which is down near the border with China. It's a very kind of difficult country in some ways like that. And President Dukayev has got a difficult hand to deal with. On the one hand, he worries that, you know, the Russians might turn their BDI to Kazakhstan and he hears fanatical Duma members saying nasty things um, and worries about that. But at the same time, this is a really important trading partner for him. If you're looking at the oil that Kazakhstan relies on for its national economy, an awful lot of it flows across Russia or through territory that Russia has control and access to. So their lifelines are built towards Russia. There is a very strong connection that exists there. Mr. Tsukhaev himself is a product of the Soviet system, you know, and a lot of his sort of leadership are. So they have a deep kind of connection that does exist. And so, you know, on the one hand, he has to acknowledge that and sort of maintain that link. But on the other hand, he does have to draw a line. And the Kazakhs have always prided themselves, I think, in highlighting that they are independent, that they are unhappy about this situation. To be honest, the Central Asians, none of them have been happy about any of these Russian excursions that we've seen into Georgia in 2008, into Ukraine in 2014, and now again, because they don't like the idea that the world can be determined by countries just deciding, well, you know, these people are really ours and we're just going to take them back because they've got ethnically mixed communities in their countries as well. And they've had lots of tensions in that regard. So the last thing they want is this to be the president. The fact that the president's also come from Moscow, which is their big kind of neighbor to the north, is even more worrying. So I, to be fair, I think they are trying to tread a very difficult line. 
so far they've managed it quite well. And I think it's really a testament in some ways to A, their ability to try to manage it. But also on the other side, I think it's also really about uh, Moscow's uh, real, I think, desperation to keep people on side in some way. And I think that's a lot of what we've seen happening over the past year in terms of Moscow with the region. You know, it's always worth remembering with Kazakhstan in particular that, of course, in January 2022, when we had the unprecedented violence break out in the country, it was Moscow that actually deployed soldiers in the end to help the Kazakhs out, even though this caused a certain level of political discomfort at home and elsewhere. It was still the choice that Kazakhstan made. And I think if something's happening again, they probably make the same choice again. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. There can be a little bit of a tendency to group the countries together as a sort of unitary Central Asia, moving in, in lockstep and making these decisions about China, about Russia. What should we understand about actually the divergence of views between these countries and the, the real differences in their outlook? 
Yeah, it's very good to break them up. It's easy to talk about the region as a grouping. Kazakhstan is is the richest country. There's no two ways about it. It's the one that's got the wealthiest oil and gas reserves. It's had them for the longest period of time. It's been exploiting them for the longest. There's a lot of money, a lot of affluence. They've got a lot of other minerals there as well. Huge uranium resources, copper, gold, all sorts of other things. And these are all resources that they've been selling in large scale to the West, now increasingly huge amounts to the Chinese. They're quite rich. So they're able to kind of determine their place in the world to a different degree in some ways than some of the others. If we look at Uzbekistan, which is kind of the second biggest, well, it's actually in population terms, the biggest country in the region with 30 million people. Uzbekistan had a situation where basically until 2016, they're ruled by a man who kept them very closed off in the world, Islam Karimov. Since his passing, the country has transformed and opened up dramatically. It's always been a kind of trading hub for the region because it, right, it sits right at the center. It has some of the most fertile sort of territories. And in, in some ways, the same as Kazakhstan, it's able to maintain a balance of its relationships with China and Russia in particular and others because of its, its strength and substance in a way. If we then look at the other smaller countries, we turn to Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, where you've got two smaller countries, very aid dependent. They look for constantly resources from other people and they're constantly looking for handouts and looking for investment. Because, you know, in, in Tajikistan's case, the country is 93% mountainous. <laughs> you know, there's not a huge amount of arable land there. So it's a very difficult place. And Kyrgyzstan has always had this big problem of a north-south divide and clans that kind of rule the country, which sort of regularly fight and have never been able to sort of come together. It's also the only country that's got a democracy that regularly holds elections, that really it's a question who wins each time. And usually what happens is there's violent protests afterwards, and in some cases the election gets overthrown. So those two are kind of the poorest of the region. And the fifth one is Turkmenistan, which is in some ways the hardest country in the region to, to penetrate because it's so self-isolating. It sits on huge gas fields, has a very small population, has a government that keeps a very tight control on everything from borders to its population. And that is echoed. But it's got a lot of money, actually, the government and the, the ruling family. And so they're able to steer themselves in. Now, how does their relationship with China and Russia differ? Well, all of them have a very strong historical relationship with Russia. I would argue Turkmenistan is probably the least dependent of all of them on Russia. The other four, in many different ways, have lots of strong links and dependencies, including in Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, the fact that there's not that many jobs in those countries. So an awful lot of the young men go and work in Russia, actually. And remittances accounts for between a third and half of GDP in those countries. So that's, you know, a huge amount of money that's dependent on young men working. In Uzbekistan, it's also about 10% of the population, but not quite as much. So they all have a very strong link to Russia. China has been the coming story in all of them. Now, Kazakhstan, it goes back to the beginning. Uzbekistan really only picks up after 2016, though, before that they were playing a role. And with Turkmenistan, actually, they've got a very strong link because they're the biggest purchaser of Turkmen gas. And so Turkmenistan's very dependent on them as kind of their only customer in a way. And then Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, they look, for, as I said, for anyone to help them out. So in a way, the relationship across the region is complicated in that way. But they all have a very similar, to varying degrees, as I say, levels of linkages and dependencies to China and Russia. To China, because China's the biggest investor. China's the biggest kind of source of products and the biggest kind of partner that they trade with. And Russia, in, in as I say, the Kyrgyz, Tajik, and Uzbek cases, because in particular, so many of their people go and live and work there and send important money back. And then, of course, they have all the human connections that, that sort of are left over from uh, the Soviet period. Where is the U.S. in this? Have you seen meaningful efforts to engage, to increase investment in recent years? Or are Russia and China very much still overwhelmingly the dominant players in the region? The U.S. is always a player there. 
as by the way, as the European Union, I would add, but in different ways. I think that the US has slightly over the past couple of years, maybe slowed down uh, some of its effort. Because one of the problems is that there's never that much high level diplomatic activity that goes into this region. So we've only seen Tony Blinken visit once for example, but we have a Vladimir Putin and President Xi visit this past year, <laughs> and President Putin's case visit all of the countries. So we've seen a lot more kind of high-level diplomatic event, and that, of course, has an impact, right? And having said that, the U.S. is still an important player. If you look at aid on the ground, they still spend a huge amount, as do the Europeans. And actually, if we look at Kazakhstan, I didn't check over this year, but certainly in recent years, the European Union as a cumulative group is the biggest single investor into Kazakhstan not China or Russia for that matter. So the West does have players. The problem is that this doesn't always translate into the same kind of influence and impact on the ground. And in some ways, what the region would really like is it to be an alternative to China and Russia. But the truth is it can't be because of geography, but also because what the West offers is never exactly always what the region wants. What the region really wants is lots of private sector investment. And of course, the West can't just turn that tap on, <laughs> you know, because companies make their own choices. You can try to incentivize them, but ultimately they make their own choices. And this is a region which is quite politically exposed. And so if you're an American company looking, where am I going to go do my big projects? You know, unless you're in the sort of natural resources sector and they're doing a very strong competition from China and Russia, you know, you're probably not going to necessarily look at this region, you know, unless you really have a lot of patience because there's a lot of risk attached to it and there's lots of other places you could try. So in a way for the region, this is a huge frustration because they would like the West and the US to be more present and more active because then they would be able to balance everyone off each other because their biggest concern, I think, which is to some degree coming to life now, is that China and Russia become so tightly closed together that it becomes impossible for them to kind of maneuver between the two and the two will kind of decide over the heads what they want to do in the region or beyond. And that kind of shrinking space is, I think, something that they worry is happening now. And the link with the West, while they would love it to materialize more, they also look at a map and notice that they're not only surrounded by China and Russia, but the other gap that they have is filled in by Afghanistan and Iran, two countries that are also sanctioned by the West. So they're entirely engulfed by sanctioned, you know, Western sanctioned countries. So it does become difficult to see how you're going to, you know, reach beyond that to sort of build links to the West as much as they would really like to. Absolutely fascinating. Raviella Pantucci, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you'll come back soon. Thank you so much for the invitation. I look forward to it. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe and leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time.